So, I mentioned at the outset that our first time here uh, in this room together was a couple of years ago, August of 2019, and we talked, and we talked about this very passage right here, this, these verses that we just read. So, these are verses that are important for our church, and um, I look forward to unpacking them. Now, you will recall last week, we considered uh, unbelief, characteristics of unbelief. And this is, this moment in the ministry of Jesus, it's the same uh, sort of section of Scripture. Jesus is still at the Feast of Booths, and he's talking today about belief and what it looks like. So that's our consideration today. And here's the thing. This is the most important question that we reckon with as human beings. Do you believe in Jesus? It is a question uh, that is central to our existence as human beings. To believe in Christ or not to believe? Like, that's the fundamental question. Now, I say that, and I could see in our minds, we kind of think, well, that, that seems silly. Uh, why, 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 why Jesus? Why belief? Why Jesus? Why belief in, in a single person, Jesus? We have difficulty with that. You know, we live in a post-Christian age, and in some, at some level, I think our culture is kind of familiar with the, the message of the gospel and belief in Christ being the way to salvation. It's kind of a popular understanding that we have. Um, universally in, in, in the West. And um, we don't like, we, we kind of balk at that. Os Guinness, a uh, Christian sociologist and thinker, has said that we live in an ABC era, an anything but Christian era. Like, we'll, we'll, we're intrigued by Buddhism, Islam, uh, Secular humanism, I mean, whatever the, the, the ideology or religion is, we're interested in it, so long as it's not Christianity. You could kind of think of us as like a, a teenager, kind of breaking free from mom and dad, and we've kind of exerting our independence. And the last people on earth that we want to hear from, as far as how our life should go, is mom and dad, right? And even if they speak wisdom into our life, we're like, no, I don't want anything, I don't want Anything to do with that. Even if it makes sense. That's sort of our, uh, that's our culture's kind of posture towards Christianity. No, we say. We've been there. We've done that. We have no need for you. And yet the scriptures, they, 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 for thousands of years, they're, they're calling us. They're calling us. They're, we believe they're a word from God and they're calling us. And they're telling us there's a question central to your existence. Here's the question. Do you believe in Jesus? And this is why belief in Jesus is so important. We touched upon this last week. It all boils down to the nature of the universe. John has told us, this is one of John's emphases in this gospel, Jesus is, is the Word made flesh. He's, he's the Logos. He's the, the cosmic glue holding the whole universe together. He created it. He sustains it. So that if we peel back the layers of creation... What we're going to find is Jesus the Christ at the bottom of it all, holding it all together, a triune God. In other words, the, the heart of the universe is personal and therefore relational. And anytime you're dealing with persons, 
or relationships, the root question is belief. Is it not? I mean, if it's a business partner, they're not going to be a partner if you don't believe in them, if you don't have some level of trust. If it's a romantic partner, you're not going to want to marry them unless you believe or you trust in them at some level. Mom and dads, uh, mom and children, trust, belief, trust. It's at the heart of any relationship. And so this is why Christianity says how we believe and trust ourselves to our Creator is the fundamental question because we're dealing with a relationship. As we relate to the world, we're dealing with a relationship. We're not, we're not dealing with just scarce resources that we exert power over to, for our own purposes. That's not what, no, it, our relationship to the world is informed by our relationship to the creator of that world. And belief is called for. That's the question. That's the fundamental question. Now, well, and here's the thing. Another thing John has said, Jesus is life. So to the degree that we believe in Jesus, as we move towards him, as we lean upon him, we're, we're becoming more alive. And to the degree that we kind of do the teenager, no, talk to the hand, because the face don't care, and we move away from Jesus, I don't want nothing to do with you, Jesus. We're done with you. Hey, we do that at our own peril. We're moving away from life. The very life that's sustaining us with the breath that we're using to reject it. We're moving away from life. This is what unbelief does. This is what we looked at last week. Remember the crowds last week? They didn't believe. Uh, they, didn't, they did not believe, and there was fruits of that unbelief. Do you remember? Uh, dogmatic foolishness. They were fools. Uh, they said, oh, Jesus, uh, we, we know this is not the Messiah because we know that when the Messiah comes, we're not going to know where he comes from. We know better. And you're thinking, well, that's not what the Scriptures say. They say he's going to come from Bethlehem, and that's where he came from. Like, it's foolishness. And it's not just foolishness. It's like certain foolishness, dogmatic in its rejection of Christ. They were cynical. Oh, where's, you know, he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And they're, they're saying, oh, is he going to go live among the Greeks? We could find him if we put a search party out for him among the Greeks. No, he's going to heaven. Like they can't, they got their little blinders on of unbelief and they can't make sense of any of it because they don't have belief. So today, what we're going to do is consider what belief looks like for us. What happens? Uh, three things, really. Um, belief, the prerequisite for belief. Belief's prereq. Um, belief's target. And the fruit of belief. So you got your prerequisite for belief, the target of belief, and the fruit of belief. Those are the three headings. So first, prerequisite. Verse 37. It says, on the last day of the feast, and again, real quick review, Feast of Booths. This is happening in Jerusalem, and so all, Jesus has been here for, the, for this whole uh, feast, and now it's the last day. This is the great day, it says, verse 37. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Do you see the prerequisite for belief, for coming to Christ in faith? It's need, Right? The way Jesus frames it is thirst. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Now, have you ever been thirsty? 
you, maybe you haven't been thirsty. I mean, there's never been a world more <laughs> with more thirst-quenching options at the ready for them, right? I mean, Starbucks, you got a convenience store, we got Sonics on every corner. There's no shortage of, like, fluids for us to quench our thirst. These people, they, they probably understood that a little bit better than Jesus. Like, they had probably really been thirsty. Water was kind of at a premium, at least clean water. Uh, and it's hot, it's dry. Uh, they knew what it was like to thirst. When you're thirsty, the, your thirst is like the only thing that matters. Satisfying your thirst becomes the ultimate objective in your life. Get my thirst quenched. And this is a picture of what Jesus is describing. If you thirst, if you hunger, if you, you don't even maybe know what it is, but you have this ultimate longing that is sort of driving all of your actions, you have this need, come to me and I will deliver the goods for you. Um, yeah, it reminds me of the psalm that says in the famous Christian song of the 80s and 90s, as the deer pants for the uh, streams of water, so my soul longs for God. Right? That it's the, it's the driver of our lives. Our soul's longing for Christ. Now Jesus has already spoken in this language. Remember the woman at the well? He says that he's thirsty himself, and she's thirsty, and they're there at noon, hot heat of the day, drawing water, and he says, I can give you living water. You, you drink from me, and you'll never thirst again. Thirst quenched. So he's already used this language. And his point is to say, look, our souls are thirsty. We long, and we hunger, and we crave. Our souls do. Uh, and we run. We run to wells. We run to all kinds of wells. Maybe it's the family well. Maybe uh, we believe that if we can dive deep into family life and have you know, lots of children, uh, have a great marriage, and all of those things, then we could, we could have the good life. Then our, our, our uh, thirst, whatever that is, could be quenched. Or maybe it's the well of sex that we believe if we could just get the, 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 the right sexual experience, or if we could go to the porn well, or whatever it may be, then we can find uh, satisfaction. Then our soul can be quenched. Or maybe it's work. If we just pour ourselves into our work, drink deeply of that well, and find success, monetary success, prestige, we build, we build an empire, then we can experience rest for our souls. But here's what Augustine said. St. Augustine, he said, your heart's longings are infinite. They're infinite. And therefore, they can't be satisfied by anything finite. The family, sex, work, they come up short. They don't provide rest. Family members die. Right? You lose them. Then what happens? That well is empty. It dries up. Um, I mean, think, of, think about, have, I know that we have, that there's struggles with pornography. Does that provide rest? Why, why do people find themselves up in the wee hours of the morning, just clicking, 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 clicking? There's no rest there for your soul. It makes you restless, right? If you found success in the workplace, 
you got the promotion, you got the pay raise, you, you crushed the deal, whatever it is. Maybe there was rest for a little bit, but then the hunger comes back, you thirst again. There's restlessness, a new, a new set of restlessness that, that comes in. Right? These wells, they don't, they, don't, they don't deliver. And Christ is saying, I deliver. Right? And this is, this is what led Augustine to conclude. And by the way, St. Augustine, he, he knew. He was drinking from the well of work, academic success, drinking from the well of sex, drinking deeply from those wells. And he realized they don't, they don't deliver. And so remember his famous conclusion? Therefore, the heart's desires are infinite, and they can't be satisfied on the finite. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. That's what Augustine said. And that's, that's what Jesus is saying here. If anyone thirsts, come to me. That's what he's saying. And so here's the point. The prerequisite of belief is need, a hunger, a thirst. And this may be obvious, but you know, when you believe in something, you're expressing need for that thing. I mean, this is just kind of fundamental. So like, let's say that I have a plumbing issue, a pipe that's leaking. Um, I can try to fix it, or I can extend belief in a plumber. So I maybe ask neighbor, do you have a plumber you like to use? I call the plumber. By doing all of that, I'm, I'm believing in that plumber to get the job done. And the reason I have to put my trust in the plumber to get the work done is because I can't do the work myself, right? That's we believe when we need. And so Jesus is saying, if you have thirst, come to me. I have what your soul needs. Now, this is a bit of an aside, but it's worth acknowledging. I want you to notice how generous Jesus is in this call. Remember, this crowd over the course of a week has shown him nothing but hostile rejection. They've called him demon-possessed. They're being snarky and cynical. They're seeking to kill him. They've, uh, the priests and the Pharisees have operationalized the temple police to arrest him and still look at what he says verse 37 he stands up he cries out for all to hear all that are present to hear if anyone anyone that's right you being snarky you being you wanting to kill me whoever you are the call is for you there's no limits on it if you know your need, come to me. I can, I can quench your thirst. And that's what he's saying. And so that is, um, I mean, belief is turning out of need and dependence to Christ. That's what belief is. And so the, the prerequisite for belief is need. It's just like the hymn says. Remember the hymn? We've seen it fairly often. The only fitness that he requires, Jesus, is that we see our need of him or know our need of him. That's it. There's no prereq except, like, I need Jesus. That's it. So that we know our need of him, that's, and that's the prerequisite for belief. Second point, Christian belief has a target. It has an aim, a, a, a clear target, actually. Look at verse 38. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, that's the target. Jesus is the target. Whoever believes in me. 
Now, it's not, Jesus isn't saying, Christian belief is not just believing that, like, everything's going to work out. I just believe that it's, it's all going to work out. Or I believe that the Lord works in mysterious ways, and, you know, we just kind of believe. Like, life's going to get better. I just believe. Um, no, Jesus is saying, believe in me, in Jesus. It's precise. There's a target. It's the person of Jesus. Now, we've said this before, but we, we, we find this troubling, don't we? Our own culture, right? Big issue for us. We would say, yeah, you believe is great. Just believe. Uh, so long as you're not very clear on the target. So you can believe in Allah. You can believe in Buddha. You can believe in um, science. You can believe in the goodness of humanity. You can believe in your parents' love for you. You can believe in all sorts of things as long as you believe. And Jesus says, no, the target makes all the difference. And this is true in just the, in the world, right? I mean, um, we, we lived, a few years ago, we lived on the Iowa-Illinois border. So it was a town that kind of straddled the border. It straddled the Mississippi River. And so there was a bridge that we would take to get across the, the mighty Mississippi. And um, it was a big, obviously, big river, uh, big bridge, high off the ground. And every time we crossed that bridge, we had, our kids were really young at this point in time, and, you know, they would be, yay, we're crossing the bridge. And, you know, you kind of think, well, what if this bridge broke? What would we do? You know, unbuckle the seatbelts. I mean, bad situation for us, right? But here's the thing. Every time you cross that bridge, you had a varying degrees of faith in the trustworthiness of that bridge. There was a bridge in Minnesota that was built at the same time over the same river, and it broke like 10 years ago. And we know, like, I'm watching these 60 Minutes stories about how bad the infrastructure is across the country because it's all built in the 1950s. After watching that, I've got a, I'm a little more nervous crossing that bridge. Hope it holds. But here's the point. I maybe have a 25% belief in the bridge to hold. My kids probably aren't even, they're just like, yay, bridge, 100%. Uh, wife Sarah's maybe somewhere in between. And not to mention all the other cars crossing the highway, the, the river on the bridge, it, the, the, the percentage of belief is secondary to the object. We all believe in the bridge enough to get on the bridge, right? So we're believing in it to some degree, and the bridge held because it, it didn't matter where our belief barometer was, it mattered the object of the belief, the target. And that's what Jesus is saying. Whoever believes, in me. Now, this, now we may say, well, that seems kind of exclusive because there's only one Jesus. Why can't there be more belief options out there, more belief targets, more bridges to cross to God? Why can't there be more bridges? Look, this is rooted, the, the, what, what theologians call the exclusivity of Jesus. It's rooted, the fact that only through Jesus can we get to God. He's the only bridge it's rooted not in God's desire to narrow things for people, to elbow anyone out. That's not the desire. Because, um, because look at the call. It's to, it's to anyone, right? I mean, he, there, is, there are no limits to who comes. Even the people that want to kill Jesus, they are invited to come to him, to, to cross him, to reach the Father. The invitation is there. The, the exclusivity of Jesus is rooted in the infinite worth of Jesus. 
the infinite excellency of Jesus, the display of his power and his goodness, right? I mean, as we're celebrating, as we're acknowledging right now, the empty tomb, you have it on the front of your order of worship, he came back from the dead. Like, if, if a person is raised from the dead, whatever, whatever you say, I'll, I'll follow you. You came back from, from, the, from the dead. You demonstrated that kind of power. And by the way, lest we doubt his goodness, why was he in the grave in the first place? Because he died for us. His goodness is on full display. The resurrection puts his power on full display. He's trustworthy. The target is good. Like, the bridge is going to hold for us. So, Christian belief has a target, and the target is Christ. Think of all the other targets that are out there. Um, religious leaders, prophets, gurus. Uh, there's no shortage of targets, right, to kind of put our hope on. But only one of them poured out his life for others epitomized on the cross and came back from the dead and promises to, to bring us back to life as well. It's a worthy target, and that's the target of Christian belief. It's Christ. It's Christ. So prereq is our need. The belief's target is Christ. Now let's consider the final point, and that is belief's fruits. And this is incredible. And as I said earlier, this is really important for us as a church. So it's good that we consider it again. Because we, we said um, way back two years ago, and we've said it numerous times since, that when a church is planted, a window to heaven opens. Well, what does that mean? We're going we're gonna to see here in just a moment. Now, there's a background in order. The, the prophet Ezekiel, in chapter 47, verses 1 through 9, I'll explain it. Um, he describes this little drip, drip of water that starts coming out of the temple. And the drip turns to a trickle, and the trickle turns into a stream that's like ankle deep, and the stream turns into a creek that's knee deep, and then it turns into a river that's waist deep, and then it keeps getting deeper and wider and bigger. And this river, do you know what's happening as this river works its way into the world from the temple? It's, it's bringing things to life. The trees around the river start growing up. The Dead Sea... The, the river from this temple flows into the Dead Sea, the Sea of, uh, of Arabah, and it brings it to life. It starts swarming, abounding with life. The Dead Sea, which was called, it wasn't just a fancy name, it was dead. There wasn't really anything in it. It's brought to life by this river. And the swamps and the marshes that surround it in these dry places, they start coming to life. Okay? So that's the background. Now, at the Feast of Booths, the people, there's a steady flow of people carrying buckets of water from the pool of Siloam up to the temple. And why are they doing that? Well, because they're going to pour it out at the temple floor as, a, as an anticipation of the promise of Ezekiel when a river would issue forth from the temple and bring life to all that it touches. So as the people are walking up with water... Jesus is saying these words to the crowds. Like, this is the last day. This is when this is happening, on the last day. These people are walking up, and he's saying, Whoever believes in me, out of his heart, will flow rivers of living water. 
Here's, here's the process. This is what Jesus is describing. It's, I think it's remarkable. We thirst. We need Jesus. We turn to Jesus. He fills us up so much so that we begin to overflow with Jesus. And, 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 and we begin to flow with Jesus. Jesus fills us, and we flow with Jesus. As his gospel works in us, it begins to work out from us. Now, you'll note, by the power of the Spirit, he says that in this passage even. Um, this is what we mean. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians? We looked at this last year too. The church is the temple of God. It's no longer the physical temple in Jerusalem. The church, and guess what? The trickle of water is flowing out of us. That healing, life, restoration, Jesus is saying, issues forth from those who believe in him. And this is why we've said, when a church is planted, a window to heaven opens. That the healing, the restoration, the, the, the Spirit's activity in the world is highlighted and underscored right here. And right down the street, and right up the street. Local congregations issuing forth the life of Christ. And this is the fruit of faith. You know, Proverbs 11.30 says the, the, uh, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Think about that. We, I mean, we've been declared righteous by Christ. We're becoming, we're made righteous by the Spirit. Like we're, the, the, the declared righteousness becomes a, a reality as we fight sin. The tree, um, the, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life for those that partake. How does this happen? How, how, do, how do you guys and how do I issue forth life to others? Like, let's get concrete here, because this seems a little abstract. We, so, um, we're a Presbyterian denomination, and we have these presbytery meetings. It's just the, the, the word presbyteros is Greek for elder. That's, so there's elders uh, here. and So basically, presbytery is all the elders from all the churches in the area, Oklahoma, Northwest Arkansas, Southwest Missouri, for us. We got together. We do these meetings once a quarter. In May, though, we have a retreat, and somebody comes in and talks to us and tries to encourage us and give us teaching. We worship together. It's, it's a good time, actually. Um, but anyway, we had that this past week, and one of the guys that was there was a guy named Jim Pachta. Jim uh, is, is in Dallas, and he's an elder in a Presbyterian church, and he's also a counselor. Now, um, he was on a committee, so our, this is a little lesson in church polity here. All the presbyteries in the country get together once a year for what's called General Assembly. And General Assembly, all the churches in the country and a little bit beyond, wanted to come up with a statement on human sexuality, given current climate. So we got to put the best minds of the denomination on it. Guys like Tim Keller and Brian Chappell and Kevin DeYoung working together and, uh, and others to put together the statement on human sexuality. And one of the people that was working on that committee to create that report, which is, you can, it's, you can avail, read it online, it's, it's available, it's really good, I, I believe. Um, it, one of the guys working on it was a guy named Jim Pachta. Jim grew up, uh, mom and dad, uh, bio, bi biological parents were kind of out of the picture. He was adopted at uh, a very young age and... Um, 
had kind of a rigid home life, Christian but rigid, and, and um, ended up moving to California, um, was gay, transsexual, living that life, um, promiscuous, um, and eventually converted to Christianity, and, um, but yet still struggled um, in, the, in these areas, uh, and eventually converted to Christianity, got married, um, and still struggles, right? Decades of, of struggle, faith and repentance. And, and now, while he still struggles with sin, I mean, this is the thing that struck me was his, his honesty sharing his fight with sin and his clinging to Jesus, right? That was so clear in his talk. And I was struck by his willingness and by the way, now he counsels uh, folks that are struggling in sexuality, or even, even outside of that, but or homosexuality, transgender, um, just sexuality in general, um, or beyond. I mean, he's a counselor, so this is, what he, this is what he does. But to hear him share this story, and, and in front of all these pastors, and I, you, know, you get the sense that it's sort of like a death to him to share this with this room full of pastors. But as he is dying, telling us his, his struggles and his fight with sin and the glor- infinite glory and excellency of Christ, who he turns to in faith and repentance regularly, his death became like a life to me. It was like life-giving to me to hear a testimony of someone fighting sin over the long haul. I, I was re- his death brought a little resurrection in my heart of life, a little bit of hope. That's just one way. There, there's other ways. I mean, we, we, folks gathering together to pray for, for someone in need in our congregation. The Spirit, it's mysterious. I don't, I don't want to just, it's not like formulaic, but the Spirit is at work in our midst. That's what Christ is saying. Somebody has a, we have a baby in the congregation and we deliver meals. Um, it's life-giving. The Spirit works through these things to bring life. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Now, we'll, we'll close with this. Um, psalm 1, psalm, uh, the first psalm, as we've worked our way through this chapter 7, I've been thinking about Psalm 1, which describes the righteous being uh, like a tree planted by streams of water that yield fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. Now, uh, this whole chapter is like a little picture of this taking place. That's what Jesus is saying. Come to me, thirsty tree, plant yourself next to me, the stream of water, and you will grow up big and strong and not only that, but you will become fruitful and serviceable to the world around you. You, you will be blessed, and you will be a blessing to your environment. Just like a, a healthy tree is a blessing to all sorts of things, to birds and squirrels and people who take its shade and its fruit, and it gives life. That's, but, but here's the key. Jesus is the well. He's the river. He's the water. You've got to be planted in Jesus. There's a target to the belief. It needs to be in Christ. And then contrast that, Psalm 1, contrast that with the way of the wicked, 
who sits in the seat of scoffers, right? Remember unbelief, it's fruits. This is what the people in chapter 7 were doing. They were sitting, they were scoffing. They were, sit, they were standing in the council of, of sinners. They were sitting in the seat of scoffers. And what's their destiny? What's the destiny of unbelief? Psalm 1 says, you'll be like chaff. The complete opposite of a tree planted by streams of water. Chaff. What, what is chaff? It's, it's worthless. It's weightless. It has no purpose. It's, it's, it just needs to be disposed of. It blows away when the wind comes. It has no security or anchor in this world. This, is, this to me is, is, these are pictures. Unbelief leads to chaff existence. Belief leads to a fruitful, large tree that is blessed and, yes, becomes a blessing to those around it. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. Help us to believe it. For we believe that as we come to you in faith, you build us up, uh, not just to be more human and more what we were created to be, but you also make us a blessing to others. Help this congregation, King's Cross Church, to be a window to heaven, to be a place where your heavenly activity is unleashed on earth, and we find healing as a result. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.